Welcome to the Way Niagara Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Burden. Chris will join us a little bit later to share about the next series for our Way groups and the podcast, What If Jesus Were Serious About the Church. So stay tuned for that. But for now, we're going to continue the conversation we started with Steve last time about mental health. Mental health is an area of passion for me, and for a number of years, I hosted a podcast on this very important topic. One of my frequent guests on that podcast was Dr. Mary Lynn, who is a clinical psychologist, author, and podcaster with over 25 years of experience. You can learn more about her at Dr. Mary. Dot com and that is d r m e r r y dot com dr mary dot com in this interview listeners to the podcast sent in their questions to dr mary so without any further delay let's get started how would you approach a family member who has a mental health diagnosis and is on medication currently but refuses any further help whether that's a new prescription or a new therapy method. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thanks. Throw a doozy at me as the first <laughs> question. <laughs> oh, they get better. Oh, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, in all seriousness, that actually is a very, very good question because it's more common than we'd like to see. Uh, because many times people with uh, mental health struggles don't realize how serious it is because they don't see themselves. They don't see themselves acting it out. And they've done the thing, they've done the medication, um, and they think they're ready. They're done. And part of it is because they have a, a difficulty just facing the reality of how serious it is. You know, denial is a tool that we like to use um, when we don't want to face our reality. So the challenge for the family member, first of all, it's going to depend on the age of the family member you're talking about and the relationship you have with that person. So if it's an adult and it's within your immediate family, then you may have some level of influence greater than if it's a cousin or, you know, some aunt from a distance. So assuming it's a, a close family member and it's an adult, uh, then let's kind of go down that direction. The reason why I specify that is if it's a child, then there are some uh, greater degrees of uh, impact and influence you can have if you are a parent or an yeah, adult speaking into this child or teen's life. Having said that, uh, legally, from the age of 12 onwards, you cannot force uh, anyone to uh, injure treatment that they don't want to as long as there's no risk to their, um, their life or the life of another. So that's the two criteria for the mental health system to kick in and legally take over is if they are in danger to hurt themselves or hurt somebody else. So from 12 and above, can you imagine? Wow. So let's assume it's an adult and it's a close enough family member. So the first thing that I would do is pray, pray like stink, um, but also really look at... Uh, uh, um, approaching them with uh, love and compassion because what happens when we're in close relationship with our family is when we go to them with guidance it can feel like criticism it can feel like nagging it can feel um, like you're judging me and so I think it's important that it comes with a spirit of genuine concern and uh, grace and uh, compassion for their pain. So I would even start off by sort of going in a little bit sideways and say, hey, how are you doing? Um, Looks like you're having a bit of a rough day. Do you want to tell me about it? 
And in the course of them telling you about their rough day, you might say more indirectly, you know, um, I was talking to my friend, or if you've had personal experience, and they had gone to see a therapist, and they found it really, really helpful. And it's just to, to give them some tools to help them deal with their anxiety. So it might be something that be you might want to consider. So I would kind of go in a little bit more indirectly um, and um, have sort of multiple conversations that kind of gently get to it. Now, the only difference is the only reason you would go more aggressively is if the person is suicidal, in which case we have to keep the person safe. But for the mo majority of situations, you have to remember it's a chronic problem. It's not necessarily a crisis. It's a chronic problem, which means you don't have to have the solution yesterday. So you can take your time with it. Right. And it's also not our place as people that are not professionals exactly. to prescribe anything. Exactly. But rather to say, you know, this is something that I've found that's in my life where I've seen somebody else or mm -hmm. kind of in that gentle exactly. direction. Exactly. I'm thinking of a friend right now that I had been having just as a friend conversations mm -hmm. about some challenges for about two years. Mm -hmm. And I had gently thrown in that... You know, I've really benefited from therapy. And it took over two years for that person to come back and say, I've booked an appointment with a therapist. Right. And we can't always think that, okay, if the results don't happen the way we want them to right away, that's not a failure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not really on us anyways. Yeah, and I think if you um, recognize that, that 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 loved one is a person, is human, and they're suffering... Uh, even though they don't recognize that there's a solution. And it can be frustrating. I mean, it's kind of like you give them a magic potion and you put it <laughs> on the table and they're dying and you say, here, take this and it'll save your life. And they say, no, you can't force treatment on people. And even if you could, uh, and they came kicking and screaming to the therapist's office, I actually can't help them because it requires, a dis first of all, a decision um, that I want to get help and a recognition that I need help. And then the willingness to put in the hard work to actually get better. So that's where it comes through your relationship. And if they trust you, and like you, with your friend over two years, I think that's amazing because you've been a testimony about the effectiveness of therapy over two years because your friend probably has seen changes and improvement. But at the same time, you've not been judgmental, you've not been pushing, you've not been nagging. And that's really, really key. So I think that that's, you got to remember the relationship first and you got to, you respond in so whether it's mental illness or whether their car needs uh, the oil change it's uh, through the relationship you don't it's not helpful to tell people what to do um, now having said that um, you know the reality of mental health uh, illnesses is that it can come with it some very difficult behaviors and intense emotions that can be uh, scary uh, so the challenge is for you as a loved one is how do you balance um, this is your journey. I'm going to pray for you and encourage you to get some help with, I need to set boundaries with you and I cannot tolerate that type of behavior. So sometimes when we are working with families who come in and say, oh, I've got a family member who's got this issue, we'll actually see them first and we'll help them come up with, well, what are your boundaries? What are you willing to tolerate? And sometimes that family member needs to stop rescuing them from the pain of what that person is experiencing. So, uh, for example, a wife comes in and a husband's dealing with um, um, addictions and doesn't want to deal with it. Well, if the husband, as a result, um, you know, ends up getting a, a, a ticket, ends up in jail, she may not actually go and 
quickly rescue him out of it. She, she may let him have the consequences of that choice so that he realizes he needs help. Right. And that's even a great idea in the sense of even if the person won't seek counsel, you can seek counsel in how to move through that situation and to help protect yourself. Now, though, let's talk about the threshold to which it's a matter of kind guidance and long suffering conversation to the fact that, you know, Mm -hmm. for a fact that their life or somebody else's life is in danger. What would you say the threshold is and what would be your advice as to what to do in that situation when it truly is a crisis? The threshold is not always discernible and that's why we have these things happening in the media where people commit suicide and no one knew that they were even contemplating it. So it's not that straightforward. I actually suggest that if you have any thought of how the person's doing, just ask them straight out. Are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you thinking of hurting yourself? And you don't have to worry by asking that you're going to force them across the threshold and, and make them actually do the behavior. Uh, in fact, when you talk to people who have had suicidal thoughts, they will tell you that to have a, somebody reach out and actually express interest has been the thing that has kept them alive. It's just engaging conversation. Can I help? Um, I'm here for you. So that's sort of what you just straight out ask them. But if you do determine that it looks like they're, um, you know, you're looking for somebody who's having repeated suicidal thoughts, somebody who has a specific plan. Uh, in in mind and actually has access to whatever they're thinking of. So you ask them directly, uh, do you have a plan? Oh, you're thinking of hanging yourself. Do you have access to a rope? And that's kind of where you kind of determine whether or not. Now, you're not a mental health expert. You're just a lay person. Uh, I would always say err on the side of caution. And if you think that that's the case, then you need to call either the police uh, and the police will have the authority to have the person be formed, is what they call, into the hospital to get uh, assessed and treatment, or the crisis center. And the crisis center, what they can do is they may send a team who will then do the assessment on the spot in your home, and then they will take the person into the treatment center. All right. Well, that is very good. Now, one last thing kind of on this first question is I've had people say to me that, you know, Therapy sounds great, and I'm glad it works for you, Mm -hmm. but I just don't think it's for me. Mm -hmm. And even to go even deeper with that is people have said, I'm just afraid of the pain of it not working. Mm. Could you address that? Very, very good question. And those are some of the typical fears that people have. What I have found to be the most effective treatment a tool is the therapist themselves. So if you were talking to your friend, I would say, you know what, just go and have a conversation with them, even a phone call, no commitment. You don't have to do a thing. And you know what, you're in the driver's seat. Nobody can force you to do anything, but just explore, have a conversation. And so I've had uh, family members who will bring in their reluctant spouses or kids or uh, friend. And just by talking to me, realizing that I'm not going to force them to do anything that's against their will. And they get to ask as many questions that they, as they want of me. And they also get to pace it. So I may have a certain plan, treatment plan in mind. But if the person says, no, 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 I don't want to go nearly that fast. I'm going to take this bite size. That's great. For me, it's just about their willingness to engage in the baby steps forward. It's not about reaching their goal in any period of time. It's that moving forward. And in the and the and the other thing too is, uh, because my job is to create safety for them, I am not going to push them into a place where they don't feel safe. 
that just destroys the therapeutic trust, which then also impacts the therapeutic effectiveness. So with that, it's kind of like they dip a toe in it. They dip a toe in it and they try it and they have conversations. And then they ask questions. And then I might suggest, okay, let's try this. And as if I had somebody come in who was that tentative about therapy, I would go extremely slow. And I would have them do things that are very neutral and not um, anxiety provoking so that they start to get comfortable. And then as they choose to, we go faster and forward as they realize the value of that, the, the, the therapy. Very good. And so now the second question coming in from our listeners is this. How can you protect yourself from someone who often uses a victim mentality about any issue and tries to include you in that victim mentality? That is a very good question because um, that is always the challenge when you deal with people who have had pain and have had tough stories. Um, It's an interesting wording, though, when the question is, how do you protect yourself? Because that sounds almost like they see themselves as a victim of the other person's victim mentality. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because um, in any situation, you always have power and say, unless there's a gun being held to you, I'm just talking about in general relationships, where you do not have to do what the person wants you to do. You do not have to believe what they say, and you do not have to get pulled into the dance. So if you're afraid of that person's victim mentality and the fact that they tend to blame, which is typically the strategy, what's helpful is for you to look within yourself. And what is it within you that allows you to be intimidated, controlled, or pulled into this this, um, dysfunctional dance with that other person, right? So that's what I would say to that person is examine what's happening within yourself. Because the reason why I say that is if you don't, and I just give you the one, two, three tools on how to set boundaries with that person, it's not gonna work. Because boundaries has to come from from within where there's a conviction that I am entitled to set these boundaries and I don't have to tolerate that behavior and I can say no and I can say stop and I can stop this, this crazy dance. But if you don't have that internal conviction, then I can't just give you behavioral changes and tools because then you're not going to be able to implement it successfully. And what will happen in those cases is the clients will come back and say, I tried that thing you said and it didn't work because of that. So that's how I would start, is start within yourself. And as you have that conviction and you realize that this, I, I am entitled to my own feelings, my own beliefs, my own actions, and they're entitled to theirs. And if they choose dysfunction, that's their choice. I can't change that for them. But at the same time, I'm not going to be responsible for that, and I'm not going to get pulled into that, nor am I going to be the one that has to rescue them or convict them time and time again, because I can't do that. We don't have to be victims. Exactly. Is just because something comes at us. Right. Doesn't mean that we have to become a victim Mm -hmm. to that situation. And, And I realize that that is a very hard statement to make. Right. Because someone may have given you. Mm hmm. So, like a, an opportunity for some real hurt and mm-hmm. some real mm-hmm. damage. But this is really important because if we claim that as our own. Yeah, exactly. And, and we have that shame. And we've talked about this before. Fighting shame for what's been done to me. Mm-hmm. Right. The idea that we are ashamed of ourselves for letting something happen to us. Well, it's not our responsibility mm-hmm. for what's been done to us. What is our responsibility is how we respond to it right exactly and how we process exactly 
Yeah. And then this friend has a chance to actually model healthy boundaries to the friend that's struggling with the victim identity. And and that's what you start to do is you, you have to have a firmness in who you are. And it doesn't mean that you have to be unkind. You can be extremely kind as you set boundaries. And you can and you can call them on their behavior and say, you know, it sounds like you're in this powerless place. And it bothers me to hear you say that because I care about you. But ultimately, it's your choice of what you, how you want to respond to whatever that situation is. Right. So is the hot seat sufficiently warm? Yes. Are you, are you, are you like, are you building up to, oh, man, I better hold on. I'm holding on. All right. All right. So number three is, is it true that there is a difference between situational depression and clinical depression? Are they two separate diagnoses, and are they treated differently? Oh, wow. That's a multi-layered question. <laughs> Don't forget, I'm over 50. I can't remember all your <laughs> questions. Let's start with the first part. Um, situational depression actually is not a... Um, official diagnosis, but it's what we use when we talk to lay people about um, depressive symptoms that come up as a person deals with difficult situations or stress in their life. Um, It's not that clearly laid out in the DSM-5. DSM-5 is our sort of um, clinical Bible on how we uh, diagnose people officially. And it's not laid out that clearly as whether or not, because it's based purely on symptoms. And to be diagnosed with clinical depression, you have to meet the criteria of certain number of symptoms. And so somebody could have a bad situation happen, which might be the trigger that leads to depression, um, but they wouldn't get diagnosed with clinical depression until such time as they actually meet the criteria for it. And there are all sorts of formal terminology. I won't even begin to start laying them out here because it's literally a thick book full of diagnoses. So I'm not going to kind of go into the details of that. Um, so uh, whatever the cause is, and you know, we don't have the science at this point to, to pinpoint specifically. There's no, you know, like blood test or, you know, saliva test or something that can go bam, that's what's causing the depressive symptoms. And it doesn't matter as much as the treatment and is it this treatment helping the person. Um, what they have found, though, is that when people begin to have depressive symptoms, there are biological changes that happen. So what comes first? Is it the biological um, changes that then leads to depressive symptoms or the depression that we don't know for sure. We just know that they seem to be correlated, that when that person is depressed, there are some biochemical changes in their brain. And that's why sometimes medications can help shift that. Um, The treatment, um, and this is my personal bias, is that I never like to just treat for symptomatic relief. So I like to also treat and look for potential underlying causes. And the person may not know, and this is a journey that we discovered together. As I hear more and more about their story, as I understand the stresses they're under, as I understand um, how they cope with life and all of those pieces, I can begin to paint a picture in my mind about some of the factors that may be involved in maybe not causing the depression, but certainly maybe accelerating or keeping it in place, the symptoms in place. And so it'll be a combination, again, like I say, of um, 
let's treat the symptoms because, of course, symptomatic relief is, is very important, but let's also treat what might be some of the causes. And for many people, it could be um, a high degree of stress. It could be unresolved grief. It could be unresolved trauma. Um, it could be even just a response to some medical uh, disabilities that they have, uh, chronic pain. We, the more we can understand that, the more we can look at it and uh, um, treat it at all sorts of different levels. So does that sort of answer yeah. multitude of your, I don't, can't remember, did I answer all three of your questions? I, th I think you did. And just, just, to, just to clarify is what I'm hearing is that there's a difference between something that is syst uh, symptomatic mm -hmm. versus systemic. Is that in the sense that if you are dealing with a symptom mm -hmm. of depression, mm -hmm. that is not necessarily diagnosed or even necessarily diagnosable, but if it's going on for a longer period of time and there are multiple symptoms and all of this, that's when a clinical diagnosis of depression may come in right. to effect. Right, yeah. I wasn't quite sure where you're going with the system versus the... Because it's not... It, the symptom. It's not, it's not the language that we usually use um, in diagnosing, but it is looking at it more in terms of the, the, the entire picture. So they would have a multitude of symptoms. So if, as an example for depression, um, typically it would be either heightened uh, sadness or sometimes numbness. Uh, there may be uh, problems of sleeping too much, too little, uh, low mood, uh, irritability, um, you know, problems concentrating, uh, problems with um, remembering, um, a tendency to withdraw, uh, problems eating, either eating too much or eating less, weight loss, weight gain. Um, so just as an example, these are some of the symptoms that people would have. So you would have to see multiple um meeting of these symptoms at, over a, a period of time, typically a month or longer before you would say, okay, they're meeting the criteria. Now, having said that, <laughs> just to make, you can tell diagnosis is, is uh, it can, it's, can be quite complex. So right, because there isn't a blood test. There is not a blood test. And even within the whole realm of depression, um, there is something called adjustment disorder, for example. And I'll get a lot of people who come with that so they come because they're uh, what they they would describe as burnt out uh, stressed out can't cope anymore feeling overwhelmed so adjustment disorder is specific to what's happening in their life um, accumulation of stressors and just um, their responses above and beyond what would normally be if they had that type of situation happen to them. They just are not able to cope. And so even with adjustment disorder, you can add the little tagline with anxiety and depression. So then it's you, what you're saying essentially is that the depression and anxiety is really more probably related to that uh, stressful situation. Uh, but again, that's just so that the treatment then is acknowledging that there's stressors that have to change in that person's life. But right. it could also, they could still get diagnosed with a major depression, a major depressive disorder too, so. And because sometimes it's these situations, mm -hmm. it's those crisis situations that actually help reveal things mm -hmm. that we didn't actually know were there. And so I was talking to somebody recently that had gone through a personal crisis, mm -hmm. had booked an appointment with a counselor mm -hmm. and the appointment didn't come for about a month they felt fine they felt as if they had recovered from the crisis and then I talked to them after the appointment and their their response was oh I just found out that I have depression 
well. And it was a total shock to that person because they thought Mm. it was a matter of a crisis or a situation. But the discernment of the therapist was that, no, if you actually take a look and you peel back the onion just enough, you're going to see that actually this is something that has been going on, that it just took the crisis for you to be able to discern, for us to discern what actually is going on. Yeah, typically, um, unless the person goes through a situation that is uh, traumatic, um, you know, huge loss, something that's a, a clear marker that starts the beginning of their symptoms. For most people, it seems to be a gradual accumulation. And uh, it, it's just more where it reaches the point of where they start to notice and they start to say, hmm. And really, you're also looking for the symptoms because we all have our good days and our bad days. And we have um, times where we feel really low. Uh, you're looking for their ability to handle their life, to cope with their life, their, their adaptive functioning. And if that's not where they're not uh, functioning well at work or school, uh, their marks are dropping, say they're in school, or they're not able to complete tasks when they normally have, you, you're seeing that too. Um, and so people can um, go on for years having depressive symptoms, but are because they're coping and they're managing their life okay, it doesn't get diagnosed, it doesn't get identified. Right, okay. Mm-hmm. That is really helpful. And I'm just thinking right now, that if listening right now, you have any further questions, mm-hmm. feel free to go to Dr. Mary's website or the unspokenconversation.ca. They're both available in the show notes because we would love to help journey with you and maybe getting more of a specific situation can help give a specific answer. Now, we're going to really turn up the heat here oh, for boy. our last question for this segment. And it is this. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay, the real question. Is our mental health more defined biologically or sociologically? No, that's not a fair question. (laughs) Because you're assuming mental health is a singular entity when it's multiple, multiple things. And so the answer is it depends. Having said that, I won't, I won't worm out of answering this one completely. Generally, what we're finding is that it's a combination of. We will have a genetic predispositions uh, to certain ailments, and that also includes mental health. Uh, my family line, for example, uh, we have a definite pattern of anxiety. But at the same token, my mom, who had anxiety, also raised me as an anxious mother would. And so it can get passed on. Um, and that's where the sociological aspect comes in. So there is some interesting research on that where um, let's take something um, schizophrenia, for example. And schizophrenia is one of those ones that people just kind of go, oh, it's clearly genetics and it's not um, environmental, sociological at all. And what they actually found uh, with a study with uh, twins who were separated from birth. So if you look at um, identical twins, their genetic makeup is identical. And... Um, the, they have the same likelihood of, of, uh, of becoming uh, schizophrenic. The one that's raised in a highly stable home 
uh, has a much lower rate of the schizophrenia. And I don't remember the numbers because, again, you're talking to an over 50-year-old. But it's something incredible such as the one who's raised in a a very stable, loving home is maybe less than 10%. And the one that's living in a... uh, less stable home is, uh, you know, up to like 30, 40%. It's significantly higher, the the likelihood of them um, becoming schizophrenic. So you can see that the environment in which a person is raised or the experiences they've had growing up really do impact a person. I mean, God has designed us to be relational. And if there's breakdowns in those relationships or we experience abandonment, rejection, abuse, and all those things, it does affect us. It does affect the way we respond. It does affect our resilience. Um, So having said that, I don't want parents who have kids who have mental illness to go, shoot, it's my fault. It's a far more complex one than I can say it's one or the other. Right. And when I read that question initially, I was thinking the same thing that, well, life mm-hmm. is very rarely in one box. Yes. And we talk quite often on this program about embracing your process mm-hmm. because every mind is made differently. Yeah. Every person's DNA mm-hmm. exactly. is made differently. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think a lot of the times when we ask these questions, and if you see a common theme in all of these questions, is none of them had a definite Yes. Answer. Yes. And that kind of scares Mm. a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So in closing, can you just address the person right now that is saying that it's it's bringing more anxiety to them that there isn't something more definitive? Mm -hmm. Can I put my pastor hat on for a moment? I've been through my fair share and I've worked with people who've been through their fair share. So I don't say any of this lightly. Um, I recognize that there's in us a desire to understand and know because part of knowing is hopefully then a sense of control. And that's one of the toughest things uh, about life is that so much of it is outside of our control. And uh, we, one of the things that I have found for my journey as well as journey of working with people is the, their ability to tolerate ambiguity and to tolerate unfinished business and unanswered questions, the side of heaven. Um, And I think that going to my pastor hat, the whole faith journey is as a follower of Jesus Christ is he is the one who knows everything. He knows every single molecule of me. He knows everything in my life. And um, he also has the ability to speak uh, truth into my life as he so chooses and as I'm receptive to it. And yet he does not. He gives us the helper, the Holy Spirit, to guide us. But our journey is a journey of faith, and it means that there will always be things that we will not have answers to, the side of heaven, or know, um, or have control over. And that's where we have to rely on the sovereignty of God, that he does know everything, and he is fully in control. And he has promised us in Romans 8, 28, that whatever he allows to happen in our life, my, this is Dr. Mary interpretation, um, he is uh, going to use for a good purpose. And so I look at you, I, I, you know, you're a wonderful young man. I love what you're doing here, that you've chosen a ministry out of your brokenness and out of your journey and of your suffering. And you want to help other people as well. And you're not coming as, as an expert who has all the answers because you've learned 
to live with the ambiguity of not having the answers. And I see a man of faith across from me. I see a man who's got the potential to change the world for God as a result, because it's actually about him. It's actually about what he's going to do. And it's actually about his redemption plan. And we don't need to know all those answers. We just have to trust that he does. Well, I appreciate that answer and that very kind remark, because I, I really do feel like there's been a lot of progress for me mm. in moving from being raised in in a mindset mm-hmm. of true false right black right white right and realizing especially going down the mental health journey and many other faith conversations mm-hmm. that it's just not that simple right and I've had to, I have to make that decision regularly mm-hmm. <laughs> to be okay with that. That's right. Because intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, that is not an easy pill to swallow for so many mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that answer. And of course, it is always a pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Mary. And I'm sure, I am confident that our listeners appreciate this as much as I do. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hi, Chris here, founding pastor of Way Niagara. And I want to invite you as our group's journey through the book, What If Jesus Was Serious About the Church by Sky Jatani. This book is, uh, to me, very foundational to the core thinking and the core values that we here at Way Niagara celebrate. Things like community, authenticity, and creativity but also engaging thoughts of what if Jesus was serious about the church? What is his stance on things like the institution, the building, the people that make up the building? And we start to study that throughout the scripture as Sky Jatani uh, authors us just a beautiful, beautiful painting of what Jesus was serious about when it comes to the church. Now I want to read the introduction to his book. Corporations now structure virtually every part of our lives. Born from the ideals of a free market capitalism and designed to thrive in a consumer society, the massive companies feed us, they clothe us, they educate us, entertain us, heal us, and increasingly, some would argue, they even govern us. Few doubt the dominance and effectiveness of corporations. For that reason, over the last 50 years, churches both large and small have increasingly copied the values and strategies of corporations as well. Most of us are probably too young to remember a church prior to the influence of corporate values, but there was a time when most churches weren't program-focused, professionally-led institutions with mission statements, HR departments, and throughout most of Christian history, for example, pastors spent most of their time ministering out in the community rather than in their buildings. They brought the presence of Christ to where the people lived and worked throughout the week in the homes, the fields, the factories, the hospitals. Today, however, corporate values have reversed this pastoral model. Most pastors now stay inside church facilities all week, managing programs, and ministry happens when people come to them. Corporate values have also changed our definition of faithful church. Corporations are financially and legally compelled by self-interest. Success is measured by the growth of the institution itself, not how it benefits the community or even its industry. 
Starbucks doesn't just want you to drink coffee. It wants you to drink Starbucks coffee. Converting the world from internal combustion to electric vehicles won't make Tesla successful. Convincing the world to buy Tesla's vehicles will. Likewise, we now assume a successful church is a large church. Institutional expansion has gone from a byproduct of God's mission to its central goal. This explains why there were only 10 megachurches in the U.S. in the 1970s. And today there are approximately 1,750 megachurches. This emphasis on institutional growth has even changed our language. Earlier generations spoke about Christians and non-Christians, or believers and non-believers. But in the era of the church as corporation, we now talk about the church versus the unchurched. These invented words reveal a shift in our missional goal. It is no longer to connect a person with Christ— We want them connected to our ministry. The assumption that the church ought to be secured, managed, and measured like a corporation is so widely accepted today that few can imagine anything else. If this kind of conversation interests you, I invite you to join us at one of our small groups. If you could reach out to chris at wayniagara.ca, we would love to plug you in. Thank you, Chris. I am really looking forward to discussing the book, What If Jesus Was Serious About the Church, for the next couple episodes of the podcast. I believe that this is going to be a really formative conversation for the Way community, and I hope that you join us for this conversation. Well, wasn't it great to hear from Dr. Mary? If you want to learn more from her, check out drmary.com. And remember, if you are struggling with your mental health, please seek help. You don't need to be alone on the journey. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. For more information on all things Way, check out wayniagara.ca. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.